Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A man wishes for a calf and is given a child. Instead of joy, he's struck with the burden of looking after another life, of which he can barely look after his own. He denies the young boy, a gift from the god, so it seems, turned away. But the boy's love for the man is strong, strong enough to put him on a quest to be accepted. In being turned away, the boy becomes something bigger and better. Listeners, I'm back. So good to be back as well. My graphics card died on me last week and I wasn't able to actually use my computer. No monitor, no screen, no eyes for me to see what I'm doing. So my computer was basically useless, and so was I. <laughs> but I'm back, El Grey Tea in hand, and ready to share a lovely Tibetan folk story. The Promise of Masang. Let's jump right on in. Long ago, there dwelt by the bank of a river a very poor man who had nothing in the world but a cow. If only I had a calf, too, he would say to himself. I would be so much better off, for then I could sell the calf and with the money buy goods and trade with them, and in time might even become rich. So he wished and wished for a calf, and prayed to his god and recited many magic forms, and every morning he went hopefully into the shed where his cow was kept, thinking he might find the longed-for calf beside her. At last, one morning, he heard a strange noise in the shed and rushed out, feeling sure that his wishes and prayers were at length to be rewarded. What was his surprise when he reached the shed to see? Standing by the cow, not a calf at all, but a boy, tall and thin and very ragged, with bushy hair and clear brown eyes. His disappointment and anger rose at the sight. What are you doing here, you young beggar? Trying to steal my cow, I suppose? The only thing I have in the world! Seizing a great staff, he went at the boy as if to kill him, and the lad shrank back against the wall. Kill me not, master! he cried. I had no thought of evil towards you. I am alone and friendless and have come begging you to take me as your son. The man put down his staff and laughed loudly and disagreeably. My son! As if I did not have enough to do in keeping this poor body and soul together without taking upon me the care of another son indeed when I wanted a calf. Nay, I have mind to kill you for your folly. And he advanced angrily toward the boy again. But I will not be a care to you, said the lad, drawing farther away. I will bring you riches and happiness for more than a calf could do. The man laughed again. <laughs> that is a likely tale. Get away from here. When you show me that wealth and prosperity, then I'll adopt you and make you my son. But not before. The boy crept to the door and there paused. Master, said he, you have grown bitter through poverty. But your heart is not so hard and scornful as are your words. My name is Masung, and I will come again and bring wealth with me. Such is my promise. Farewell. The man went back to his heart, pondering deeply, and in his heart regretting the harsh words he had spoken to the boy, while Masang fled away into the fields. For a long distance the lad travelled, seeing no one and meeting with no adventures. At last, however... As he was passing through a fair green meadow, he came upon a man sitting under a tree. 
and the colour of this man's clothing and of his face and hands was as green as the grass beneath his feet. What manner of man are you? asked Masung, greatly wondering. The man put his head on one side and looked at him slyly out of small green eyes. I am a youth, he said, of good understanding as this world goes, and I was born as green as the green meadows. Come with me, said Masung, and let us live together, for I have need of you. So the green man arose and followed the boy without a word. After a while they came to a forest so deep and dark that they had great trouble in making their way through it, and in the very centre of it they found a man sitting upon a log under a tree, and the clothing and skin of this man were as black as midnight. What manner of man are you? said Masung to him. The man flashed his dark eyes upon him and said, I am a youth of good understanding as this world goes, and I was born as black as the black forests. Then come with us, said the boy, and we will live together. I have work for you to do. So the three travelled silently on, through the woods and out again, into the open country. When they had gone a great distance, they reached a region of rocks and sand, very bare and white in the sunshine. As they were traversing this land, they came upon a huge rock, at the foot of which was seated a man clad in linen, very white and the colour of his face and hands was as white as the sand about him. What manner of man are you? asked Masang. The man turned and looked at him, and his eyes were as pale and colourless as his face. I am a youth, said he, of good understanding as this world goes, and I was born white, as white as the sand and crystal rocks about me. Then, said Masang, we have need of you. Come with us, and we four will live together. Not far from this place, the four companions spied a little hill, whereon stood a hut, strong and in good condition, but apparently quite deserted. Here they took up their abode, and lived quietly for many days without any adventure. Every day three would go out to hunt, and one would stay at home and prepare the midday meal, each taking this task in turn. Now one morning, Masung, the black man and the white man, set forth to hunt, leaving the green man behind, and at midday they returned tired and hungry. To their dismay, they found the ground in front of the hut much cut up by horses' hooves, and the green man standing at the door looking thoroughly puzzled and frightened. Alas, my comrades, we shall all have to go dinnerless today, for, while I was cooking the stew in the big pot over the fire, a band of horsemen came upon me and took all that we had in the house, even the pot itself. Come in and see for yourselves. The three entered and, finding no sign of food, were forced to prepare for themselves a meal from the result of the morning hunt, which was difficult enough with no pot to cook it in. There seemed no reason to doubt the green man's story, for the marks of the horse's hooves were clear and plain in the soft ground before the door of the hut, but Masang examined these marks very carefully and then came back and spoke sternly to the green man. Comrade, you have dealt falsely with us. However it came about that you lost our dinner, I know not. But of this I am sure, no horseman came into our door this day. You made those hoof marks yourself with a horseshoe. Tell us now the truth of the matter. The green man gave Masang a sly, cunning look, but he said nothing. The next day, having got another pot, 
Masung, the green man, and the white man set out to hunt, leaving the black man to watch the stew and get everything ready for the noon meal. When they returned, they found all as it had been the day before. Dinner and everything to cook it in had vanished. The ground in front of the hut was cut up as with horses' hooves, and the black man was standing at the door, empty-handed. They came again, a band of many horsemen, and they took the pot of stew from the fire, and all else that I had prepared for you to eat. I was powerless to fight against them, they were so many. But Masang doubted his word, and after he had looked closely at the marks before the door, he said, My friend, these are marks you have made yourself with a horseshoe. What adventure has befallen you? Why should you hide it from us? I pray you, tell us the truth. The black man looked darkly and evilly upon Masang, and answered never a word. The third day the same thing happened. It was the white man's turn this time to stay at home and prepare the dinner, but he had no better success than his companions, and had only the same story to tell them when they returned. I am glad, said Masang, when he had tried in vain to learn the truth from him that tomorrow it will be my turn to play at cook, mayhap the same adventure will befall me, and then I shall learn why and how you three have deceived me. The three said nothing, but they looked at each other understandingly. The next morning, having secured a new pot from a nearby village, Masang sat down to prepare dinner while the others went forth to hunt. There, said he to himself, as he set the pot of stew over the fire, now may the adventure that befell my companions come also to me, and then I shall see whether or no I have more wit than they to meet it. For some time there was no sound within or without, save the snapping of fire, but scarcely had the stew begun to boil, before Masang's sharp ears caught a little sound of rustling outside the window. He sat quite still, looking and listening. In a few moments there appeared over the edge of the windowsill the top of a small ladder, and a thin, sharp voice exclaimed from without, Alack-a-day, alack-a-day, what a steep climb! But methinks I smell a savoury stew cooking within! Up the ladder, over the windowsill, and into the room climbed a little old woman, not more than two feet high, all shriveled and bent, and carrying on her back a bundle no bigger than an apple. Ah, said she, looking from Masang to the stew, and back to Masang again. I pray you, son, Give a poor old woman a taste of your stew, just a taste, and then I will be gone and trouble you no more. Masung moved as if to give her what she asked, but catching sight of a very evil smile on her face, he paused. It may well be, thought he to himself, that this is a wicked witch, and if I give her a taste of my stew, she will carry off stew, pot and all, as she very likely did with each of my three companions, was here before. I had best be careful. Then, turning to the old woman, he said, Good mother, right gladly will I give you a taste of my stew, but it is now much too thick, and I dare not leave it lest it to burn. I pray you fetch me a small pail of water, that I may make it more savoury, and then you shall have as much as you desire. The old woman grunted, being ill-pleased, but she took the pail which Masang handed her and immediately disappeared out of the window. But she left her little bundle behind her. Now, Masang had purposely given her a pail with a hole in it, 
so that she would be a long time trying to fill it, and as soon as she had gone, he went to her bundle and opened it. In it were a ball of catgut, an iron hammer, and a pair of iron scissors. As he took these out, they grew larger, and by this he knew for a certainty that she was a witch, and determined to deal very carefully with her. He sewed away the three treasures in his pocket, and put in their place a ball of ordinary cord, a wooden hammer, and a pair of wooden scissors. As soon as he had placed these in the bundle, they became as small as the others had been. Then he went back to his place beside the stew and sat watching it, as if he had never moved. Before long, the little witch woman flew in at the window, tossed down the useless empty pail, and stamped her foot in a terrible rage. Have a care, she shouted, and her high cracked voice trembled with anger. Have a care how you meddle with me. My body is small, but my power is great. Give me a taste of your stew at once, or it will be the worse for you. Masang looked at her quietly and did not move. I am not afraid of your power. So long as you taste not my food, you are no stronger than I. Indeed, said the old woman, stamping her foot again. Do you think in your pride you can match your strength with mine? Well, so be it. Let us see which has the greater power. I will put you to three tests, after which, if you do not cry aloud for mercy, you may put me to the same. Come now, do you agree? Or does your courage already begin to fail you? Not in the least, said Masang, getting up. Let us have the tests at once. The witch picked up her bundle, opened it, and took out the ball of cord, which she thought to be her magic catgut. First, I will bind you with this. And if you succeed in freeing yourself, you can do the same to me. If not, and here she laughed scornfully, <laughs> you shall be bound to me, soul and body, to be my slave forever. Then she flew at Masang and tied his legs and arms securely with the cord. But as it was only ordinary cord, and Masang's strength was great, he very soon broke loose from it. The old woman howled with rage, but he quickly seized her and tied her fast with her own magic catgut, and though she struggled long and hard, she could not work herself free. Enough! cried she at length, panting and weary. Loose me! You have won this test, but it is only the first and the least. There are two more, and if these you will find yourself easily overcome. Masang unwound the catgut from her, and she sprung up, trembling and gnashing her teeth in anger, while Masang was calm and quiet, as if he were merely playing a little game. Tell me, Mother Witch, are you the one who has visited our heart for three days past, and each time spirited away our dinner and the pot to cook it in? The little old woman broke into a cackling laugh. Indeed, yes! <laughs> and your three fine companions had not wit enough to save their dinner. One taste of their food gave me power to carry away all that they had, and I tell you, it was very pity for their stupid heads, which kept me from bearing them away also, to be my slaves and water carriers, a likely tale they made up when they were ashamed to own that a little old woman had got the better of them. Band of horsemen! <laughs> And it was only little me. But come, the second test. And if you fail in that young man, as you surely will, you will die. There will be no mercy for you. With that, 
she snatched from her bundle the wooden mallet, not stopping to notice that it was not her own iron one. She flew savagely at Masang and began to beat upon his head with it, shouting, There now! There now! Cry for mercy before I hammer out your brains! But the blows fell upon Masang's head as lightly as the blows of a tiny stick, and he laughed aloud, bidding her hammer away. It quite amused him. At length, weary and breathless, she paused. And now, said Masang, you must let me do the same to you. Taking the witch's iron hammer from his pocket, he brought it down upon her head with great force. The old woman clapped her hands to her head, uttered a shriek, leaped into the air and flew out through the window. Just at that minute, the black man, the green man and the white man, having returned from the hut, appeared in the doorway. Quick, quick, cried Masang, pushing past them. Let us follow the little witch woman. She is wounded and will fly right to her lair. Come with me quick and follow her. So the four dashed out of the hut, and after the old witch as fast as they could, she flew low in the sky like a great bird, and every now and then a drop of black blood fell to the ground from the wound in her head. At first she flew so fast that Masang, with the other three behind him, had great difficulty in keeping up with her. But after a while she began to waver and fly unevenly. By this time the four found themselves running over a barren stretch of land, and uneven, and they stumbled and fell more than once. But as the flight of the witch became even slower, they managed to keep her in sight. At last, they saw her fall to the ground and lie quite still. And running up to her, they found she was dead. An evil old witch, said Masang. Yet I meant not to kill her, only to wound and drive her away. She would have killed you quickly enough, and us too, if we had let her. Looking around them, they saw nearby the mouth of a deep, dark cave. This must be her lair, and no doubt it is filled with treasure. Let us go down and see. But apparently there was no way of getting down. The cave was so deep they could scarcely see the bottom of it, and the side was steep and smooth as polished marble. Masang, however, found that he still had in his pocket the ball of magic catgut. This he unwound and, finding it would reach at the bottom of the cave, bade his companions hold one end of it firmly while he climbed down upon it. Inside the cave, the light was very dim, but as soon as his eyes became accustomed to it, he saw, lying in great heaps upon the floor, gold and silver, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and all manner of precious stones. He shouted joyfully up to his companions, who were leaning over the mouth of the cave. Fetch bags! Big bags! And I will fill them with treasure. Then you shall pull them up with the catgut. And afterwards, we will divide the spoil and be all four rich and prosperous for the rest of our lives. The three men hurried back to the hut to get bags. And while they were gone, Masang roamed around the cave, which was large and full of dark corners heaped high with treasures. He had scarcely finished looking about when he heard the green man shouting to him from above. Then bags were thrown down and he filled them to the brim with gleaming gold and precious stones. All the rest of the day until darkness covered them, they were busy. Masang filling bags and the three men hauling them up, emptying them and sending them down again to be refilled. At last, Masang caught up, saying it was too dark for him to see further, and the cave was pretty well cleared out anyway. He fastened the catgut around his waist and bade his companions draw him up. But, to his dismay, he saw the green man leaning over the mouth of the cave with an evil smile on his face and a knife in his hand. 
Now, Master Masak, said the green man, and his voice sounded harsh and cruel. If you think we are going to drag you up to share the spoil, you are much mistaken. There will be just so much more for us if you are not here. So farewell and peace be to your bones. You will never be able to get out of this cave to tell tales on us. With that, he cut the cat gut and disappeared, and Masang could hear the three talking together and then moving away. All night long he could hear them coming and going. Evidently they were bearing away the treasure. When morning came, there was not a sound, and Masang knew that he was quite deserted. He sat down on the floor of the cave and buried his face in his hands, and his heart was very heavy. But after a while he got up and looked about, thinking that he would not despair until he had made sure there was no possible way of getting out of the cave. A careful search showed him that there was nothing left to make use of but a handful of neglected gold and three cherry pits. These he picked up and said to himself, It is my last and only hope, he thought, and aloud he said, By all the power of good magic, I wish that I may find a way out of this cave to light and freedom. Then he buried the cherry pits directly beneath the mouth of the cave. Scarcely had he done so when a great wave of drowsiness came over him and, lying down on the ground, in a few moments he fell into a deep, dreamless sleep. When he awoke, he found to his astonishment three young cherry trees standing tall and straight beside him, and the top of the tallest of these reached up to the mouth of a cave. He jumped up joyfully and stretched himself. In reality, he had been asleep for several years, yet it seemed no more to him than so many hours. It was easy enough now to climb up the cherry tree and out of the cave, and glad indeed he was to be free again and out into the sunshine. He tramped eagerly along until he came to a hut where he bought food, paying for it with some of the gold which he had brought up with his pockets from within the witch's cave. It were long to tell of Masang's wanderings after that. He travelled far and wide ever searching for his false companions until at last, after many weeks, he came upon three very elegant houses, surrounded by beautiful grounds, and with every sign of prosperity and wealth about them. These houses, he soon learned, belonged to his wicked friends, the green man, the black man, and the white man. At the time, all three were away upon a hunting trip, so Masang procured a stout staff and took up his stand by a gateway through which they must pass on their way home. He had not waited very long before he spied them in the distance, coming toward him. They walked gaily enough, never thinking of trouble, and did not even see him until they had got quite close to him. Masang stood directly in their path, his staff in his hands. The green man saw him first and, giving a cry of fear, fell at his feet. Then the other two saw him and they also fell trembling before him. It's Masang! they cried. Or his ghost come for vengeance! Surely now we are doomed! Get up, said Masang sternly, touching them with his staff. Get up, I am no ghost, but Masang indeed, whom you left to die miserably in the witch's cave. I had intended to slay you with this staff for your falseness and cruelty, but you are too base and cowardly to touch. The three still lay trembling and groveling upon the ground. Alas, good master, cried the black man. We have suffered enough already because of our evil deeds. With all our wealth, we have been wretchedly unhappy and have found neither peace by day nor sleep by night. This is indeed true, groaned the white man. 
We will give you all our wealth and become beggars, if you will but forgive us and let us go away unharmed. And even the green man nodded his head in token of agreement. At this the heart of Masang was softened. Come, said he, get up, and we will talk it over. And when they had risen to their feet, he said, This much I will require of you. Let each of you take half of his wealth and go with it to the bank of a certain river. There you will find a poor man who has nothing in all the world, save only one cow. Give him the treasure that you have brought and say to him, Your son, Masang, sends you wealth and prosperity with his love. Do this faithfully, and I will freely forgive you. The men readily promised to do all that Masang had bidden them. And in a few days he saw for himself the three starting forth at the head of a great train of mules laden with wealth and treasure of every sort. And did they find the poor man with the one cow? Asked the Khan's son. Go on, you haven't finished. Yes, they found him, said the Siddur Kur with a laugh. <laughs> and they poured out their wealth before him, and when Nasan came shortly afterwards, they may be sure the old man received him and kept him as a well-loved son. But you, O oh prince, you have forgotten the words of the wise Nagaguna. You have broken silence on the homeward way, and so now you have no further power over me. With a shout of joy, the Siddhakur leaped from the bag of the prince's back and sped away into the distance. Nor did the Khan's son set eyes on him again until he had retraced his steps through all the dangers and hardships he had met before and stood once more under the mango tree in the cool grove beside the garden of ghost children. Seeing him so persistent in his mission, the Siddhakur made no objections to being taken again and allowed himself to be tied into the magic bag with the cord of a hundred threads and tossed once more onto the prince's back. After they had travelled a long time in silence, and were both grown weary, he suggested again that some wonder tale be told, and receiving no answer from the prince but a nod of agreement, he began at once. And your next tale will be Tale 3, How Six Friends Sought Adventure. Goodness, the Khan's son does not learn, folks. <laughs> he does not learn at all. He really needs to restrain himself before he talks and sends the Sadir Kerr back to the mango tree. I also like how the Sadir Kerr doesn't even bother climbing on the mango tree at this point or complaining. He just sees the Khan's son and thinks, here we go again. Gotta say, talk about determined, gotta hand it to that guy and his endless optimism to capture the Sadir Kerr. Join me for next week's episode, which will be an old time radio. I'm going to explore a different one than the usual Nero Wolf. But if you have any requests, reach out to me via my email, which is storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Also, if you're able to support the show with as much as a cup of tea a month, visit my Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash sfgt, where you can support what I do. Which means better episodes, more sound effects, but importantly, I never include ads ever. Oh, how I hate ads. And... This just makes it even easier not to include them. Now mates, time to thank my amazing existing Patreon supporters. Firstly, I want to thank my amazing Ode Night Tea Titan, Magnanimous Marvelous Maya, Green Feather. And for those who are new to this, I write short stories 
as often as I can for every single Patreon supporter above the L Grey tier. Let's dig in. A feather is found in the middle of a barren landscape, plain as day, and obvious as it floats slowly to the earth amongst the setting sun. It stays still for weeks, withstanding the wind and enduring the sun, when eventually a boy stumbles across it during his play period. His joy, his happiness, causes the feather to shift, to grow, to exist in the realm of reality. But of course, this isn't an ordinary feather. The land bends, and the farm ground shudders. The green feather was the very myth that called to life the city of Verdi, a town, a city, a nation, built on a land with unstoppable growth and happy inhabitants. The land of Verdi, the place of optimism. My white tea warlord, Lesosaurus Rex, the invisible divide. Between two cities is an invisible divide, a line that covers 20 miles across the two, that splits whatever crosses into it, or between it, into two. After the border is crossed, that is. Cut in half, top to bottom. The invisible divide doesn't discriminate, but one would think that this would be weaponized, or a danger to the community, but on the contrary. The divide is used and controlled as a means for fast construction, and advanced cuttings of buildings and housing. War was an option, but they built a union on the fundamentals of a mystical divide. And my white tea warlord, Paige Kramer, torch of everfire. The world fell into a darkness whose pitch could not be penetrated by even the brightest of flames. A depth within the shadows that coiled around light and snuffed it out, for what seemed to be permanently. But a torch was made, crafted by the wisest of women, a tool of hope, and created to bring light when all thought that there was none. Sigils and symbols of their people, the torch of Everfire, a gift of the gods through the whisperings of gods, shared to the thoughts of the women from Friendfire. The torch was crafted to burn away the darkness and forever change the world. And now for my amazing Earl Grey Enforcers, I am lucky to have Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, and Solstra. And my remaining supporters, Catherine Mason and Sunshine Days. Thank you all for listening, you loveliest of people. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail. But remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plotline. That's the magic of storytelling. Like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.